Amen. You may be seated. Please turn in your Bible to Mark chapter 1. We have just begun this glorious gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, and we make it now to Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. Yes, two verses. 14 and 15. Hear now as I read God's holy and infallible word. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Amen. God's word, may he write it on our hearts. Well, brothers and sisters, we are moving slowly. I got it. And we have now only reached verses 14 and 15. And if there were any questions last week, there should be none now. Jesus has begun his public ministry. First, we read about the forerunner, his forerunner, John, John the Baptist, and his announcement that one greater than him would come. Then Jesus, at the time which God had appointed, appears on the scene in the Jordan River, and he gets baptized by John. He identifies with us in our sin, yet he has no sin. Then the Spirit drives him into the wilderness where he is tempted by Satan. But now, there's no question, Jesus is preaching. Jesus' public ministry has begun, and it's very direct here. You know, this is the first time that Jesus says anything in Mark's gospel. And so we read the very first words that Mark records for us right here in verse 15. So Jesus is baptized, he is tempted, and then now he speaks. You know, this is all bound together. This is all bound together in Jesus because Jesus' ministry involves the whole package. And his chief calling involves preaching, involves proclamation of God's word. And so a minister duly called to minister in Jesus' name. It's the same. He is the minister of the word and the sacraments, but the primary most important ministry is preaching. And the rest of what he does as a minister is bound to and flows from that. His prayers should be word-saturated. His teaching should be Bible-centered. His evangelism should flow from that. His mercy ministry and his counseling ministry they're all bound up with that and flow from the gospel. 
Now, did you notice when Jesus begins his preaching ministry? It was after John was thrown into prison. Jesus was arrested. I'm sorry, John was arrested. Not Jesus, not yet. As the English Standard Version puts it, or even better, he was delivered over to prison. This is profound because this later, toward the end of Mark, describes what happens to Jesus. The fates of Jesus and John are closely linked. And that connection, that link has to do with the cost that Jesus will also endure for preaching repentance. You see, there's a high price to pay for gospel ministry. Yes, as a preacher in a local congregation or a home or foreign ministry, uh, missionary, but also just as any officer, whether elder or deacon, there is a great cost. Just as John came preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins, Jesus also preaches repentance. And with that message comes a severe cost, being seized and bound, being handed over, being arrested and thrown into prison. When, G when John calls others to repent, what happens? He is arrested. He is reviled and poked fun at. And when Jesus, at the end of his earthly ministry, what happens to him? He is arrested. He is looked down upon. He is reviled and poked fun at. He is, as Isaiah 53 predicted many years before, even Jesus' incarnation. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. What's more, Jesus is hung on a tree and this is the same cost to different degrees, yes, but the same cost that you and I and all those who follow Jesus must pay. There is a cost. You might not get thrown into jail, at least not now in the U.S. Who knows some years from now what that will look like. You probably won't be crucified or executed as some Christians in other parts of the world are. Well, if this gospel is indeed written from Rome, then we can also see that Mark wants to encourage the Christians there as well, who are handed over daily to the emperor. I mentioned before how their bodies would be lit up like torches, providing light in the night sky. Christian, you are united to Christ, and that is good news. And you will pay 
the cost, not just for your belief, but also because as Christians, in your testimony, you call others to repentance. Well, knowing that there is a great cost in gospel living, knowing that you will face adversity and strife, no matter how severe it might be, knowing that you too will take up your cross and pay the cost of your life for the gospel, it is crucial that you understand what the gospel is. Wouldn't you think? If there's such a big cost in following Jesus, if there's a, such a big cost in gospel living, wouldn't you think it'd be important to know what the gospel is? Well, in Mark's gospel, after he leaves verses 12 and 13, he does not deliberately, necessarily elaborate on the gospel message. But he comes to Galilee, and he is preaching the gospel of God. It's God's gospel. It's all about God. And it all comes from God being the source. And some versions, like the New King James Version, add the gospel of the kingdom of God, which gives us a little bit more clarity and uniformity with verse 15. And there, here is a summary of Jesus preaching. Why did Jesus come? And what did he come to do? And it's laid out nicely here for us. There are and have been churches throughout the ages who have tried to adjust the gospel to meet their own desires. There are probably some right here in this city that do the same. But here, Jesus makes it clear. And we will look at Jesus' first words together. Well, first, you need to know that and be reminded that God's timing is always perfect before we look at Jesus' words. God is never early. He is never late. He is always on time. You see, the very first thing that Jesus says here is the time is fulfilled. This seems a bit redundant from previous sermons, but it has to be repeated. Jesus arrives on the scene at the time, that very time that God had appointed. And when he makes his debut in Galilee, he marks his defi a definitive point in history. The last time the Messiah's arrival was predicted was about more than 400 years prior. And when it is God's prime time, when it is the most opportune time, according to God's perfect plan, he arrives on the scene. Now, Galilee is Jesus' home turf. It's his home territory. And this is where Jesus chooses to begin his ministry. Even though it was part of Herod's territory, and even though John was paying the price that he himself would also have to pay one day. He does not hesitate one bit. It was Jesus' mission to begin there. He could have started anywhere, 
but Galilee is where he came. There was no delay because it was God's time. It was not that God was waiting anxiously for just the right moment to send his beloved son to the earth. God is the creator of time, and he is above time. In his sovereign providence, God brought this moment in history to fulfillment. Throughout history, God had been steering everything toward this time. God had used types and shadows and prophecies. And he used that to bring within the people an anticipation that the Messiah would arrive. This was a decisive moment of the fulfillment of this messianic hope for which people were waiting. And many with much expectation and they were waiting for a very long time. Well, the moment was here at last. Brothers and sisters, you might be in a situation right now where you are struggling with something. Maybe you just don't understand why or how or even the when. How long, oh God? Is probably your prayer. But be assured, God keeps his promises, and he is the promise maker and he is the promise keeper. That same language that is used by, Gal by Paul in Galatians 4 4 when he says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. God has brought the time that John the Baptist spoke of in verses 2 and 3 to a close at this moment in history. And Jesus waited patiently for God's timing and waited for that long prepared for moment. There are times when you have difficulty in trusting God's word. You struggle with trying to discern God's will. You have timing issues. Cars have timing issues for the mechanics in the room. But you have timing issues. You struggle with and get down on yourself when you don't make progress in Christian maturity. You wonder when and if the person that we have been praying for, that you have been praying for, will ever get saved. Remember, God's timing is perfect. God always keeps his word. Always. Always. Well, the next thing we see in Jesus' first sermon is the close relation to the gospel with the kingdom of God. There's a close relationship between the gospel and the kingdom of God. Jesus preached the kingdom of God. And it is God's gospel. It comes from God and it is all about God. Now, in order to understand the gospel and what it does, you need to understand the kingdom of God. The people were expecting the kingdom to come with the promises that were made to, 
to David in 1 Samuel chapter 7. And up until then, kings would rise and fall, and, and people, all the people, were disappointed. Rather, they were frustrated. I know you've probably read in your studies that the kingdom of God is the church. Well, yes, it is, and no. The church is the pinnacle of the kingdom of God. It's ultimate represent, representation for the world to see. But that is not all. There is more to God's kingdom than the church. To understand kingdom, you need to understand that it is God's kingship. It is God's sovereignty. It is God's royal rule over all things. God, being creator of the world, is the king, and he is exalted far over his creation. He is ruling in majestic splendor. So when we read the word kingdom here, we should not read it as referring to a specific time or place or event or situation. It has less to do with the realm over which God reigns and more to do with the sovereignty by which by by means of which he exercises his royal rule. As was Israel's concept in Exodus chapter 15, verse 18, so should our understanding be, the Lord shall reign forever and ever. Now, like there is a kingdom of God, there is an opposing kingdom, the kingdom of Satan, the kingdom of this world. The kingdom of Satan goes contrary to all that God stands for, and is trying to accomplish. And if you are a human, you are either in God's camp or you are in the enemy's camp. Mark is saying that the saving rule of God is now in our midst like never before in history. He says that the kingdom of God is at hand, that the kingdom of God has come near, in Christ Jesus. Jesus himself is the embodiment of God's rule. Jesus proclaims that in him, the kingdom of God is already among them. He will bring the rule and the reign of God into the life of the sinner. And he will rescue the sinner from Satan's kingdom, the kingdom of sin and death and hell. He wants to remind all of you that you do not exist for yourself. That's what sinners do, right? They serve themselves. They serve their own earthly desires and the lust of the flesh. But you actually exist for one purpose. For the glory of God. That's why you exist. That is what all of creation exists for. That is the reason you are here. You thought when you woke up this morning, the world revolves around me. The world is here to serve me. Now, you won't say that. But that's what you thought. 
I know you kids are like that sometimes. But actually, the world revolves around God. God is the center of the universe. And if you didn't know it, Jesus Christ is God. Go ahead and read all of, of John and you'll see it. So now Jesus has appeared on the scene. He proclaims the kingdom of God and he is the embodiment of the kingdom of God. And he came to bring true spiritual liberty. <clears throat> this rings Isaiah 61 again, doesn't it? Freedom to the captives. That's what he came to bring. He came to a world staunchly opposed to God, full of rebellion and hatred toward God. He came to seek and to save lost sinners. He came to bring destruction to Satan's kingdom and to expand God's kingdom. And he did that. All And this is all gospel by rescuing sinners from Satan's kingdom, the kingdom of darkness, and bringing them into his kingdom, the kingdom of light. You see, in God's camp, there is life. In God's kingdom, there is life abundant. And there is peace and blessing and happiness and satisfaction and delight in God. Jesus came to establish God's rule over all things. Not just over one little people group in the Middle East. And he does this one individual at a time. He breaks into our life and he radically changes our life from the inside out. He gives you a new heart and he gives you a purpose for living for God's kingdom. So you would willingly and whole, wholeheartedly pray your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That is gospel work. That is the gospel wrapped up, tied up, and bound up with the kingdom of God. Jesus brings God's kingdom rule into your life. You were once living for yourself. You were once serving yourself. You were once being led astray by the devil, the flesh, and the world. But now, even though you battle with sin, even though you battle with these things, you have a new Lord. You have a new master. You have a new king. And the rest of verse 15 will explain how he establishes his kingdom. And these two imperatives or commands are gospel imperatives. The essential message of Jesus here, the summary of how to respond to the kingdom of God in Jesus his giving you new life requires that you live your life in a certain way with Jesus as king. New rulership requires a new kingdom lifestyle. 
He says two things. He says, repent and believe the gospel. And you, you have to take notice here. Just as the last words someone says before they die are usually very important, so too are the words of the very first sermon of Jesus' public ministry. And Jesus lumps these two commands together. He says, repent and believe the gospel. They're together. And so we need to look at them together. Because really, you can't have one without the other. They are a package. They are bound with one another. And Jesus proclaims, repent and keep repenting, by the way, and believe. Keep on believing. This is how you are to live in the kingdom of God. This is how God in Jesus Christ establishes his kingdom. It's radical. And it has to do with his sovereignty and the rulership and the power of Jesus Christ, which conquers everything that stands in its way. You know, since you were born, you belong to the world. You serve the flesh. And Ephesians says you practice your own sin. That was normal for you. You were on God's opposing team. Then one day, you met Jesus and everything changed. The kingdom of God made its way and the sovereign almighty God's spirit with this powerful word, the gospel changed your heart. When this happens, you could not resist any longer. All you could do is bow the knee and confess Jesus Christ as Lord and King. The repenting and the believing happen simultaneously. They are both in a package. When you repent, you believe. When you believe, you repent. There's no way you can say, well, I'm just going to clean up my act first and then I'll believe in the gospel. If that were that way, uh, you would never believe because you don't have the power to repent apart from trusting in Jesus. You cannot get your life together on your own volition and willpower. That's impossible. And you can't believe without also repenting. I was wrong. I served the wrong ruler, the prince and ruler of the air. It just doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way. The repentance and the faith were both a gift. Acts 11 says that it is granted to Gentiles, to us, to you, to repent. It's granted by God. Ephesians 2 says that faith is a gift from God. You see, the sovereign king gives these to you. They're a gift. Now, in order to understand what's going on, however, I think it would be good to consider them with the time we have left a little bit individually. And so that leads to the third thing. Jesus calls you to repent. He preached the need to repent. Jesus says, repent. We serve our flesh. We serve the world. We serve the devil in our lives. Now, no matter how old we are, 
So what is repentance? Well, there are two common misconceptions about repentance before we go into what it really is. The first one is that repentance equals sorrow. But actually, repentance is an outcome of sorrow. Sorrow leads to repentance, but sorrow itself is not repentance. Children, you can feel remorse for something wrong you did. You can feel sorry for something wrong you did. You can feel bad for getting caught because you don't want to endure the consequences for your actions. But that's not repentance. But it does lead in the right direction. Now, the next common misconception is that repentance equals a changed life. Because conversion is not repentance. They are two separate things, though repentance is part of conversion. So, so then what is it? Well, what is repentance? What does it entail? Well, it involves putting away more and more evil and sinful thoughts, words, and deeds, while at the same time replacing them with holy and pure thoughts, words, and deeds from the Lord and from his word, from the gospel. It's having that desire to do so and by the Holy Spirit's enablement, putting it in practice. And, and there's a struggle, there's a battle here because you have sensed your sin, you have shame of face, but you also apprehend God's mercy in the gospel. You understand and you know God's mercy in the person of Christ. And this involves three parts. And you really need to listen carefully. First, it involves admission of sin. It involves that you need to acknowledge your sin and be convinced that you are a sinner. You need to come to grips with the fact that no one can keep God's holy law perfectly. No one does good, not even one. And if you acknowledge your sin and you are convinced that you are a sinner, you are on your way to true repentance. But there's more. There's a second part to it. There's a sorrow for your sin. Are you truly sorry that you have offended God? And, and you know, there are two types of sorrow. There is godly sorrow and there is worldly sorrow. Godly sorrow brings repentance unto life. But world sorrow only leads to death. We can deeply regret that we did something. Judas, he was sorry that he betrayed Jesus, but he was only sorry that he was caught. He was only sorry for his consequences, and that's all. But this is so often our experience, isn't it? Shoot. Got pulled over. My car didn't have timing issues. <laughs> but true sorrow is centered on the gospel. True sorrow is this. If you truly grieve over your sin, if you truly experience shame of face over your sin, then you realize in your heart 
that you have sinned against God and that you have grieved God. But the only way that you would have true sorrow for sin is if you truly love God. So there's the faith connection. Do you see it? Do you hear it? Faith and repentance. If you, you only sense true sorrow for your sin, you only be truly sorrow for your sin if you love God. The third thing is that there's a turning from sin to righteousness. The word for repentance in the original means a 180 degree turn. It is an about face. You are living for your own fleshly desires in sin, but you have been convicted. The kingdom of God has been bearing upon your heart and you are stopped in your tracks and you decide in your heart and you forsake the sin. You stop it. You drop it. And you follow your king, King Jesus. And you live for him. And when you repent, you have a changed heart. That is the result of repentance. The fruit of repentance is a changed heart. That is a, what happens when you repent. You then have a changed life. At the same time, you have faith. And that's the final thing this morning for us this morning. Jesus preaches the need for faith. Jesus commands belief in him. Well, what is faith then? Well, the shorter catechism says faith is in Jesus Christ is a saving grace whereby we receive and rest on him alone for salvation as he is offered to us in the gospel. You see, faith is that instrument you have to get a hold of who Jesus is and what he has done to bring you into his kingdom. And a good way to remember faith is, is to also think of it in three parts. First, faith is based on knowledge. You need to have a knowledge of Christ. You need to have heard the gospel, Romans 10. You need to have heard about Jesus, who he is and what he has done and what he is doing and why he came and why he died and rose again. But that's not enough. Anyone can read the Bible. Anyone can have it read to them and receive gospel knowledge. The second thing that is needed is not only knowledge, but assent. We need to be convinced that this message is indeed true. We need to be convinced in our hearts that Jesus is indeed the truth. We really need to be convinced in our souls that Jesus is indeed Son of God. Remember an earlier verse, He is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. But that's still not enough. Even the devils knew and they were convinced and they believed and shuddered. Satan's minions knew Jesus and what he had come to do and believed it. After the sermon, we'll pray for, for them. And trust. That's the third thing. We need to trust in Christ. We need to lean on his everlasting arms. We need to cast ourselves on Jesus Christ. 
We need to lay a hold of salvation in Christ. We need to take Christ seriously at his word. We need to love him and follow him wholeheartedly. We receive the gospel of the kingdom. We receive Christ alone and we rest on him alone for salvation. We cannot, none of us can earn our way into heaven. We can only take hold of Jesus who earned it for us. And just as in repentance, there are fruits of faith. If you believe, there will be evidence in your life. Just read Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. You are created for good works. You have been given grace and faith so that you will do good works. Good works are results of the gospel, of the kingdom of God's work in your life. And Jesus commands both, repent and believe. It's a package and it's a gift. When you get Jesus, you get both. It's called conversion. It's called regeneration. It's called being born again. So that's the gospel. It's about the rule of God in Christ. It's about trusting God at his word. It's about knowing that the sovereign God and his perfect providence send forth his son to be king of his kingdom. And knowing that he has granted us to repent and believe in Jesus Christ alone for salvation. And you know, as we begun this morning, I emphasize the cost of the gospel, the cost of kingdom living. And it is a great and awful cost. But the benefits, knowing Jesus and being with Jesus and Jesus never leaving nor forsaking you greatly and infinitely outweigh the cost. Let us look to him in prayer. Our Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you for this glorious proclamation, the proclamation of the gospel of the kingdom of God. And we pray and we thank you that many of us have received that word by your grace. And we pray that many more would receive the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ, our Lord. And Lord, we do pray for our dear sister, member of our congregation, Lynn, whatever's going on in, in her body, we pray, Lord, that she may know the peace of Christ and whatever treatment or whatever it needs to be done, that they may receive she may receive the, the right and correct treatment. Lord, we pray that she may know your love and our love for her. And we pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen.